pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 245. Today I'm going to chat with Michael Helms, aka Firearms Historian, discuss the shuffling of leadership at the ATF, highlight the new PMXS from Beretta, and talk about why a congressional candidate can't use his nickname. I am your host, Ava Flanell, and Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Ava. It's great to talk to you. I know. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Um <laughs> Oh, and that's Peaches. She wanted to say hello, too. <laughs> Hi, Peaches. <laughs> uh, she's like sitting here biting my hand. And if I don't let her bite my hand, then she starts barking. And yeah, it's yeah. great. Who cares if my hand's bleeding? No big deal. So much for my modeling career, my hand modeling career anyways. Anyways, OK, before we start and learn more about what it is that you do with firearms history, I'm going to take a quick break, talk about Smith & Wesson. One of my go-to home defense guns is the MMP 2.0 pistol. I've got a couple of the versions, both full-size, compact. You can get them in 9, 40, 45, as well as available in 4.25 inches, 4.6 inches, and 5 inches. You can also get them threaded and suppressor ready with suppressor height sights and coat witness red dots. You have the choice of black, FDE, or two-toned. MSRP on these start from $610 to all the way up to $969, depending on the options that you select. Really great gun. Like I said, it's my go-to gun. Shoots well. Also, my go-to gun to bring to the range. And uh, I think you guys would enjoy it. So if you want to check it out, head on over to smith-wesson.com. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Okay, so Michael, actually, how I got you on the show is you do a lot of the firearms history stuff for Smith & Wesson. And I just recently wrote an article about 22 Long Rifle and how it basically came to be. And they contacted you for pictures of the uh, Smith & Wesson Model 1 and any of the stuff that I talked about in the article. And then our contact, she put us, you know, in touch with each other. And I just thought, like, how fascinating. I mean, especially because, unfortunately, I don't feel like there's not like a lot of people that really concentrate on the history of firearms. So I was just really excited to have you on the show. And I think my listeners would definitely enjoy it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's actually one of the reasons I got into firearms history. I was, I'm kind of an accidental gun person. You know, I didn't grow up in a military or a law enforcement family. I grew up on a maple syrup farm in Canada, actually. But when I, when I started doing my history degree, I kind of tripped into firearms history by accident. And I realized that it was just this wide open field. I mean, there's a, there's a small handful of people out there that are doing some really fantastic research, but there's so much of it that just hasn't, hasn't been written about and talked about. And Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a huge part of American history. Yeah, absolutely. Was your degree in history? It was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my degree is from North Carolina State University in American history. Nice. Because yeah. typically, you know, you don't meet too many people that are using their degree. So you're like one of the few. <laughs> yeah, one of the three. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So growing up in Canada, what was that like, especially, you know, as you got more into firearms? Yeah. So I actually, you know, I grew up on a maple syrup farm and we did, you know, we had a rifle and a shotgun, but it was just for, you know, varmint control. So I just never honestly really thought that much about it. And I moved to North Carolina in 2001. And not that long after I moved, a friend of mine brought me to uh, to a shooting range. That was something that he enjoyed doing. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And actually, in, you know, within a couple of months, I had bought myself my, my first revolver, which actually was a Smith & Wesson Model 60. I didn't I didn't know anything about them other than they, you know, it looked cool and I enjoyed going to the range with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is different. And when I go back home and I tell people about what I do, you know, it definitely sort of people cock their eyebrows and they're, they're, they're sort of curious. And at the same time, there's just not, not the same gun culture in Canada that there is in, uh, in the States. So yeah, yeah it, it's different, but I, I enjoy it. Yeah. 
I'm also reading that you wrote your thesis titled Smith & Wesson, America's First Modern Firearms Enterprise. What was it that attracted you to Smith & Wesson? So when I, when I started writing my thesis, I actually wasn't specifically focusing on Smith & Wesson. I was looking more at Roland White, who was an inventor who had patented this really convoluted and kind of terrible gun design that didn't at all work. But the one thing that was included in that patent was that he had bored the cylinder all the way through. Hmm. If you think about like a percussion revolver, mm -hmm. the cylinder is not bored all the way through. It's bored, you know, I don't know, maybe nine tenths of the way. And then uh, the end of the cylinder is closed off. And Roland White in his design had bored the cylinder through all the way. So when Daniel Wesson and Horace Smith designed the Model 1, which of course had a, had a bored through cylinder because that's how all revolvers work that shoot cartridge ammunition, they went to patent that design and they discovered that this patent already existed. So when I started writing my thesis, I was actually focusing much more on Roland White and who he was and about the patent. And then sort of from there, I kind of migrated over to Smith & Wesson. And I realized when I started doing that, that nobody had, nobody had really done much scholarship about the beginnings of Smith & Wesson. Of course, we all know the company. It's been around for 100 and, I don't know, 170 or some odd years now. Mm -hmm. But the, the sort of the origins of the company and what it came out of and, you know, why Smith & Wesson became this powerhouse in, in three years. Most startups, especially self-funded startups, don't go from, you know, nothing to building a, a purpose-built factory, you know, with their own money in, in three years time. So that, you know, I just kind of tripped into that story. And that was what I ended up writing my thesis about. So it all, it all kind of happened accidentally, but it was... Uh, uh, it was a ton of fun and I really enjoyed it. And obviously I still enjoy it. Mm -hmm. What was it like in college writing about firearms and, you know, discussing firearms? Like how was that taken among peers and your professor? You know, so my professor absolutely loved it. And I have to say, I, there were, there were some great people at NC State. I, I think there's this idea that college is sort of full of really, really hard left-wing people. And, and they're certainly there, you know, like anywhere you, you can find them. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised how many people were really interested in my thesis and embraced it. I was invited to uh, present a number of seminars. And I was, you know, I was pretty sure when I walked in that my politics, at least around, around guns and guns control, was pretty different than everybody else's in the room. But I was really surprised how open people were to the topic. And actually, I would say there was only a couple of people that really just didn't seem to approve of it, but they were they were in the minority. Hmm. That's interesting. Although I guess, I mean, my experience is much different than probably yours because I did go to school like college in New York City. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be so, totally different. That's all that I have to compare it to my college experience. <laughs> I mean, I can remember my civilization of the old South teacher. He like canceled class for a whole week. So he was going duck hunting. So and I thought that was really cool. It's a totally legit reason to cancel class. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. And then from there, what were your next steps? So in 2016, when I was still writing my thesis, I was, I was starting to wrap it up at that point. I attended a conference of the um, Smith & Wesson Collectors Association. I, had, you know, I was sort of vaguely aware that this organization existed, but I hadn't really done much with it. And I had mm -hmm. heard that they do this conference. And I thought, well, what the heck, I'll, I'll, I'll go out to it. And I was invited to, uh, to speak about my research when I was there. And you know, I, didn't, I had no idea what to expect, so I didn't really do a lot of planning for it. And honestly, when I got up to present for an hour, I really just started talking about sort of the history of my thesis and how it kind of evolved to where it was and what I had learned about Smith & Wesson. And what I realized, I mean, I had an audience of probably 200 people there who were absolutely riveted because, again, nobody, there's not a lot of people that have spent time researching and writing about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So immediately I'd sort of found this kind of spiritual home with these collectors who collected everything from, you know, the first model ones and even the mechanics that came before that and all sorts of other guns right up to, uh, right up to president day stuff. So, you know, what that kind of told me was, you know, Hey, there is a community of really interested people out there who are kind of craving this and want a lot more about it. So I became more involved in the collecting association. Actually, I sit on the, uh, the board of the collectors association now and, you know, got really into the collecting community. And it, again, it just kind of snowballed from there, but it all happened by accident. I never, I never sat back and sort of came up with this big plan about how it was all going to unfold. So, right. yeah. I love it. I know. I mean, same with me. I never sat out to like when I was living in New York city, like, all right, I'm going to end up with a career in the firearms industry, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it is weird but how you know, things just kind of fall into place. But, you know, it's probably, and it was probably the same for you. I mean, there's so many really good people in this community and 
you know, now when I go out to the collectors association conferences, it's like a, it's almost like a family reunion, you know, yeah. like asking about people's kids and how so-and-so doing and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I would say at this point, you've become kind of an expert on the Model 1 revolver, which is the first gun that Smith & Wesson came up with. Yeah, it was. Um, and this is, I, I, I got to give a little bit of a caveat here. There was actually two Smith & Wesson companies. Oh, the first Smith & Yeah, the first Smith & Wesson was founded in 1852. Okay. Um, it still exists. It's called Winchester. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even know um, that. Yeah. So, and you know, the real history buffs will criticize me a little bit for that because it it sold and changed names a number of times through the years. But mm-hmm. the original Smith and Wesson in 1852 was producing a gun called the Volcanic, which was a lever action uh, pistol and carbine. And of course, that evolved into the Winchester, especially when they hired Benjamin Tyler Henry to improve that design. And that's where the the Henry Yellow Boy rifle came from in around 1860. So when we talk about the first Smith & Wesson, you have to sort of caveat it with this question of, well, which, which Smith & Wesson do you mean? But the present day company, which was actually founded in 1856 and which is still called Smith & Wesson, the Model 1 revolver was the first gun that they produced. It was a seven-shot, 22 caliber revolver that shot a 22 black powder round, which is sort of the same as a modern 22-day short, but it was charged with black powder, so it was much weaker than the current 22 mm-hmm. short round. And that's really my special, that's my collecting specialization. Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to take a quick break real quick and talk about primary arms. If you're looking for a good, affordable, low power variable optic, Check out the SLX 1-6x24SFP with the ACSS Aurora Reticle for 5.56. They're pretty ideal for ARs, giving you fast close range capability on 1x and good range capability when you zoom to 6x. The reticle has holds in 50 meter increments out to 800, including windage dots up to 40 miles per hour. It's only $289.99, but if you use the code AVA, you're going to get a free one-piece scope mount, perfect to mount it on an AR. And remember, you'll get a free one-piece scope mount with any Primary Arms optic that you buy. You can find this at primaryarms.com. I read in your bio that you have, what is it, 40 or 41 of the Model 1 revolvers? Yeah, something like that. That's It, it fluctuates. <laughs> That is so yeah. crazy. So where where does one go about to find this? I mean, I'd imagine <laughs> and at this point, you know, I mean, not to like pry, but I would I would assume that they've gotten pretty expensive. I mean, it's a collector's item. Yeah, you know, here here's the interesting thing about the Model 1. They were made for 25 years. The first Model 1 we think was made in early 1857. Uh-huh. And they were made through to about 1883. So there there was about a quarter of a million made of them. They're actually not all that difficult to find if you go on you know, any of the big online auction websites or whatever, you can, you can probably find one. So finding a model one, isn't that difficult. I think at this point in my collecting, I, I try to find ones that are a, a little more interesting or unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're, they're definitely out there and um, they're, they're just a tiny little gun. They're only about seven inches long. Okay. So a few questions. So what is typically like, what is the price range for it? So if you find a really rough model one, I mean, it could be, it could be as low as, you know, a hundred or $150. Dang. I would say sort of a, you know, if you just want kind of a representative sample for your collection, you're probably going to be three, four or $500 somewhere in that range. And then it just goes up from there. Hmm. Okay. And then you also said that at this point you look for something that's sort of interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, are you talking about like kind of like a serial number or something that just has like some interesting features, like what makes the model one revolver Sure. Kinda. So the Model 1 was really at the cradle of kind of the birth of mass production and certainly for Smith & Wesson. So the gun, the design of the Model 1 changed over the years. There's uh, in the collecting world, we talk about sort of three different issues of the Model 1, which kind of represents sort of the time frame when it was made. So if you're the sort of collector that has to have kind of one of each variant, there's about 30 different variants of the Model 1 to collect. So that that could be interesting. I think it, for me at this point, what I'm typically looking for is guns that were marked by a particular dealer. 
most model ones weren't marked other than just their, you know, the marks from Smith and Wesson that were put on the uh, top or the side of the barrel. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we find dealer marked guns and those can give us, you know, a little bit of a clue where they want a model one that's dealer marked by a reader that was named Wolf, Dash and Fisher. That was a uh, distributor in New York City that actually shipped goods and hardware down to New Orleans. So we're pretty sure that was a gun that was sent down to New Orleans when it was made in 18, I think that was 1858 or 59. Hmm. So that's always interesting when you can find a gun that's got, you know, more documentable history like that. One of the challenges with Model 1s is Smith & Wesson shipped virtually all of them to their sole sales agent in New York City. There was one guy that was the sort of wholesaler, you could call it, for Smith & Wesson. And all the factory records show virtually all the Model 1s is having shipped to him. So there's usually not a lot that you can get from the factory records at Smith & Wesson, you know, if you like to get your old guns lettered and that sort of thing. So typically it's those guns that have some sort of other marking on them that would give me some clue about where they might have went. There's also engraved guns. And of course, engraved guns, that's its own kind of art field mm -hmm. and field of study unto itself. And then, like you said, sometimes just unique serial numbers. In my collection, I have the earliest known Model 1 and the latest known Model 1. And, you know, we know that from the serial numbers. So those are those are always kind of fun to collect, too. Wow. And this might sound stupid, but at what point did they start serializing? Because I know that, you know, there's the whole Curio and Relics, like that's a whole nother. Yep. From gun number one, all of them were serial numbered. Interesting. Okay. Well, I should say from gun number five, because that's the earliest one that we know of, but I'm fairly certain that one through four were also serialized. Huh. But they haven't been discovered yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do you have the number five? In my hands. Dang. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We think it was, um, I mean, it was definitely a handmade, you could almost call it sort of a tool room prototype. I mean, it mm -hmm. looks, it looks like every other model one, but mm -hmm. it's, it was almost certainly a handmade tool room prototype, probably made by Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson themselves. We think it was actually shipped to, not to New York, to the distributor, but it was actually shipped to a company called the American Machine Works that was also located in Springfield. And that was a company that we believe was making tooling for Smith & Wesson. So this gun may actually have been a sort of tool room prototype, you could call it, that was then used to build toolings to make other Model 1s. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. And you're going to the NRA show and you're going to be at the Smith & Wesson booth with this gun, correct? Yeah, I'm going to be with the Smith & Wesson Collectors Association and we are going to have an exhibit there. This, uh, the Model 1 is actually going to be our focus of our exhibit. We're going to have one, two, three, four, I think five of the earliest known Smith & Wesson revolvers in existence there, including number five, number 11, number 21. There's a number of others out there that are in the collecting community that we're going to have there. So we're really excited to be able to do that. Of curiosity, how do you guys get the firearms there? Because it's not like you're Smith & Wesson where you're like, all right, we'll send like 20 of these <laughs> models, you know, 15 of these. Like, I would be like, uh, no, this is coming on the plane with me. We're not checking it in. We're going <laughs> to, you know, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be in my truck with me for that drive. So, okay. So you're driving that, there. Okay. Yeah. That one. I, I mean, I live in Baton Rouge. The yeah. So it's is in, pretty easy. I think it's in Houston. So it's not that far away. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause yeah, I would collectors, be afraid. <laughs> collectors are usually pretty jealous of that stuff. We don't, uh, you know, we don't just throw it in a box and ship it somewhere. Right. So. I can only imagine. One thing when I was researching 22 Long Rifle, which I don't know how I was given this to write about. It's not like I was like, hey, I love 22 Long Rifle and I'm going to write about how it originated. Amanda over at Smith & Wesson, I don't know, she just sort of, because I'm sponsored by Federal. And so she sees it as like a good opportunity for me to include Federal into my articles and write about ammo and stuff. But I don't know how we came up with the idea that I was going to write about the history of 22 Long Rifle. And even just talking to some of the federal employees and trying to figure out like, okay, where did the first 22 cartridge come from? Because there was a little bit of, you know, some people were saying it was the Flobert round. Other people were saying it was from something else. Yeah, the pin fire. Yeah, maybe that's what, and it was like, and then I was like, well, how am I supposed to know exactly? Because <laughs> I mean, Wikipedia is saying this, but then the book of calibers, the worlds of calibers, yeah. I think, and that's yeah. saying another thing. And I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of frustrating. And, yeah. and I think that that's kind of how history is. A lot of times it's like, depends on who you're talking to. History is so frustrating that way. And, you know, something, something I started doing when I wrote my thesis was when I would find information, I would always look at where, where did they get that information from? You know, I'd go mm -hmm. to their, 
footnotes or endnotes or bibliography or whatever. And what I realized was sometimes the wrong thing would get written, but then it would get sort of quoted so many times that it, it just sort of became canon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there is a lot of conflicting information. And I can, I can tell you what I think the origins of 22 are. But of course, I wasn't around in the 1840s and 1850s. So, you know, that's just based on my research that I can find. So I think you're correct that the origins of the 22 cartridge specifically was a French round called the Flaubert. The Flaubert round was essentially a primer with a bullet stuck on the front of it. So it it had a very, very short cartridge case. There was no gunpowder charge in it. Uh, Like I say, it was just the primer and the bullet. It was really what we would call kind of a parlor round. There was these sort of indoor shooting ranges where people would go to, but because they didn't have, you know, hearing protection and all that, they typically chose the the smallest calibers that they could find just because that made it more comfortable to shoot without hearing protection. So the, the original 22 Flaubert rounder actually in Europe, it was called the six millimeter for obvious reasons. I think that was the origins of it. Now, the problem was these inventions don't generally just sort of come out of nowhere. So, I mean, prior to that, there had been the invention of the primer, which is a chemical called the fulminate. Mm-hmm. And that was, I believe, the 1820s or the 1830s. And the Flaubert round was not the first time that there was a brass or a copper cartridge. So the origins the origins of all of that start to get a little bit murky. But I think, I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying that it was a Frenchman named Flaubert that developed the original six millimeter Flaubert cap. And... What I don't know for sure is whether Daniel Wesson and Horace Smith just essentially copied that design mm-hmm. or whether they kind of independently invented it. It does seem a little bit coincidental that a 22 caliber does work out almost exactly the six millimeters. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it does sort of seem like they were borrowing a little bit there. But what Smith and Wesson essentially did was they lengthened the cartridge a little bit. They put a, a charge of black powder in it. And like I say, that dimensionally became what we now call the 22 short. Now, like I said before, the modern 22 short round has smokeless powder in it. It's actually a much more powerful cartridge. So please don't go buy a Model 1 and put 22 shorts in it <laughs> because you'll probably split the cylinder in half mm-hmm. and you don't want to do that. Yeah. But that was that was where the 22, I call it the 22 black powder, just to differentiate it from the 22 short. Mm-hmm. And then from that, as often happens now, the cartridge case um, sort of expanded over the years. There was the 22 short, then the 22 long, then the 22 long rifle. And yes, those are two different cartridges. And then, of course, the modern 22 long rifle. Now we have supersonic rounds and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But that's really where it came from was Smith & Wesson and Flaubert, Flaubert, who built the original cartridge, and then Smith & Wesson, who expanded it a little bit and created what we now know as the 22 short. Hmm. There also was a cartridge in there called the Pinfire, which it looked like a cartridge, but it had a little pin sticking out the side of it. And when you put the cartridge in, you had to kind of line the pin up with a little cut in the cylinder. Otherwise, it wouldn't wouldn't load properly. Pinfires were really popular in Europe in the uh, early 1850s. So that was also kind of in there. Of course, the, the rim fire was better because you didn't have to align it when you put it into the cylinder. So yeah, that's that's the Mike Helms brief history of uh, the origins of the 22 cartridge. I wonder how reliable these cartridges were, especially the ones where you had to line up. And all I keep thinking is like, here you are in battle and just like, okay, hold on. Let me just line up my yeah. pin cartridge and... Yeah. And then not to mention, I mean, 22 rimfire, even in today's world, you know, can be finicky at times. Absolutely. I think I think it's important when we talk about history to sort of put it in the context of the times. And of course, the context back then was your alternative was cap and ball and loose powder, which certainly worked. And there was, you know, obviously a lot of successful firearms that shot those. But part of what the cartridge did was it removed the human error element of... Mm-hmm. Not charging the not charging the round enough or putting too much charge in, and also because it contained it made a lot more waterproof. That was actually a, a big marketing thing for Smith and Wesson early on was that this was a waterproof round, so you didn't have to worry if it got wet. Mm-hmm. Whereas with cap and ball, typically if it got wet, that was you know that was the end of it, and you had to unload it and remove the the fouled powder out. So I think in the context of the times, it was very reliable. Was it perfect? Of course not, but I think it was a it was a big improvement in 1857. Hmm. Or 56. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm going to take another quick break, talk about Mantis.
Mantis has a great visible way to train with your firearm. The Laser Academy gives you everything you need to practice with the smartphone app and improve your skills without the cost of ammo. The app gives you insights on what you're doing wrong, which let's face it, that's something that you can't get just by dry firing, which is also good practice, but it definitely helps when you have an app that's able to give you some feedback. The standard kit comes with a choice of calibers for the laser, a carrying case, two tripods and phone holders and target stand holders for just $150. The app has a bunch of drill options that you can run as well as like fun practice options to make things interesting. Definitely check that out at mantisx.com. Can you tell me about the development of some of the other early cartridges? Sure. One of the one of the really interesting things with Smith & Wesson was at first they were actually making the cartridges. So when you bought a gun and you bought cartridges, you were buying the whole kit from Smith & Wesson. Hmm. Of course, something that happened really quickly was other companies started to crop up that were just making ammunition. And in fact, there was a couple of people from Smith & Wesson. I think one of them was even uh, Horace's son, Horace Smith's son, who went off and started their own ammunition companies. So all of a sudden in the early 1860s, we just saw this explosion of ammunition being made by all sorts of different companies, of course, with really cool box art. So actually that's a whole sort of collecting subgenre is just early, early 22 cartridge boxes. But we, we saw all sorts of really interesting things. And, you know, one of my, one of my favorite ammunition boxes, which has nothing to do with model ones is actually a box of 45 ACP. And I'm putting this in air quotes, crowd control cartridges, which were basically 45 ACP shotgun shells oh, wow. um, that were intended to be used in a Thompson submachine gun of all things. Dang. So yeah, I mean, all, all of a sudden that literally gave birth to the ammunition industry as we know it today, being able to buy pre-made ammunition, which of course, prior to this, that concept really didn't exist. You bought, you bought lead and you bought powder and you bought primers and then you, you put them together yourself. Huh. But that gave birth to this whole new industry making all sorts of different cartridges. Then companies got into cartridges for different purposes. Were you target shooting or were you hunting or was it for self-defense? So mm -hmm. we, we think of that as kind of a new phenomenon, but that actually does go back to the 1860s and the 1870s when this was all in its infancy and, and very new and very exciting. And a lot of it too was used for like fairs. Like if you were doing, let's say like a carnival and it was like a game or something. I think that's Absolutely. what I read. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, and, I mean, and that gave birth to early, early target shooters like Annie Oakley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, a, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody's, you know, show. A lot of his show was, was around marksmanship and shooting. So again, that, that definitely, I would say that was probably a little later in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I think we saw the big rise of that probably more in the late 1870s and into the 1880s and 1890s westward expansion in the United States. Of course, there was sort of the, the cult and the romance around that and the cowboy ethos, and that also fed into it, but definitely. And there was actually a period in the United States in the early 1900s when target shooting was actually the most popular sport in the country, believe wow. it or not. Yeah. So crazy to think. Yeah. What about 40 Smith & Wesson? What can you tell me about that? Because I'm assuming Smith & Wesson invented the 40 caliber. Yeah, the 40 Smith & Wesson was a Smith & Wesson invention. I believe that that actually came out of the FBI shootout in 1986, the very famous uh, shootout that happened in Miami where the FBI, who were primarily carrying revolvers at that point, were just completely outgunned. Mm -hmm. There's a really extensive Wikipedia page where you can read more about that. But essentially what came out of that was the FBI realized that with their 38 caliber revolvers, they were just completely outgunned and they needed to do something and they needed to do something fairly quickly. So originally they had looked at using the 10 millimeter round, which of course is much more powerful and kind of coming back into vogue now. Mm -hmm. The problem with the 10 millimeter was it was powerful enough that a lot of uh, shooters of shorter statue or people who weren't that large physically uh, were having trouble handling the, uh, the 10 millimeter round. Mm -hmm. So Smith & Wesson developed the 40 S&W round, which um, they won't like me saying this, but it, it does, there was sort of this joke for a while that S&W stood for short and weak. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it was, it was a shorter case than the full length 10 millimeter round. Mm -hmm. and, Smith, and the 40 S&W round became kind of the, uh, the darling of the industry. And, you know, that was actually, you know, cartridges being named after the companies that invented them. I mean, that was that was a big thing. And of course, that went back to the 1800s. Yeah. Um, there was the 45 Colt round, the 32 Smith and Wesson round. 
And actually there was a 38 Smith and Wesson round. And of course they loved that because when Colt made a revolver in uh, 38 Smith and Wesson, they would still, they would, yeah, they would have to call it 38 Smith and Wesson. And I'm sure Smith and Wesson chafes every time they make a revolver chambered in 45 Colt and they have to stamp that on the side of the barrel. Right. But that was, that was naming, naming the cartridge after the company was the thing that went well back into the 1800s. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I always wonder, I mean, I'm, I would just assumed obviously Smith and Wesson invented the 40, you know, Smith and yeah. Wesson, but I didn't really know the history behind it. And then yeah, now they, to think that nobody really wants a 40 anymore. Although, <laughs> although I say they'll that. They'll come back in style. Yeah. They'll come I, back in style. I'm like, I say that. But then again, I see on when Smith & Wesson like post something, like let's say the new Shield Plus, they're like, cool, when are you going to make it in 40? So I yeah, can't really yeah. say that. There's still a lot of people that love 40. Well, 10, well, 10 millimeters coming back into vogue now. So we'll have that for a while. And then people will be like, gosh, if there was only a cartridge that was the same diameter as 10 millimeter, but it just wasn't quite as powerful. Right. <laughs> well, as soon as you said that too, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably one of those people that I don't love shooting 10 millimeter. I mean, it definitely has quite a bit of recoil, a little too much for me to like really enjoy using the gun. Yeah. Yep. But if I had to use it for self-defense, I would do it, yeah. but it's not something that I want to take to the range and shoot leisurely. No, but that wasn't, that wasn't the only round that Smith and Wesson invented. I mean, they invented the 32 Smith and Wesson, the 38 Smith and Wesson, the 38 Special, the 357 Magnum, the 44 Smith and Wesson, 44 hmm. Russian. I mean, there was a lot of calibers that Smith and Wesson yeah, invented over the years. So. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't realize that they invented all of that. Yep. Super interesting. You've written a lot of articles about pistols. How do you decide what guns to research and write about? Like, do you just see something that you're like, oh, that looks fascinating. Let's research and write about it. Or, I mean, how you does know, that, so, how do you pick? Yeah, sometimes it's as simple as that. When I started collecting Model 1s, of course, I was just trying to, you know, scoop up anything I could find. Mm -hmm. And then it became a race to find, you know, what's the earliest gun I can find. And I actually got incredibly lucky at a farm auction in North Carolina back in 2016. I think it was 2015 or 16 when serial number 475 just sort of serendipitously popped up and at a farm auction and landed in my lap. So sometimes it is just about the serial numbers. And sometimes it's just what comes along. That Model 1 I mentioned earlier that was dealer marked to Wolf, Dash, and Fisher that we think went to uh, went to New Orleans. That was another one that just popped up at a gun show. And it was really cool. And I, I scooped it up. And I'm very glad I did. Of course, you know, as historians, we write about the things that survive that we can get our hands on, whether it's, you know, whether it's the guns or the documents or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. I mean, we have to have tan something tangible to start with. Otherwise, we're just making it up which we may do anyways. Mm -hmm. But uh, oftentimes it is just as simple as what comes along that's interesting and catches my fancy. I've been doing this for long enough now that sometimes if, uh, if a collector is selling off their collection, they know that I collect model ones and they'll reach out to me. So sometimes, you know, I can sort of get access to a gun that might be coming up for sale before it sort of comes onto the open market. But oftentimes it just is what lands in my hands. I actually had a flintlock pistol from New Orleans uh, from the 1820s that kind of crossed my path and I thought it was really cool. So I picked it up and um, that's kind of a little side research focus of mine right now. But sometimes it just is being at the right place at the right time and something interesting comes along and just following my instincts and my hunches mm -hmm. and going to farm auctions. Yeah. Do you collect any like, I don't know, any military stuff that was used like in, you know, World War One, World War Two, because I know like a lot of the baby boomers are, you know, starting to pass away and they have yeah. these, what are they called? Lockers, the yep. trunk. And, you know, they'll find them like in the attic and yep. they're just like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, yep. and then a lot of times like they'll donate it to a local museum or something. But there has been sure. sort of an influx of donations just because it's around that time where a lot of them are passing away. Have you noticed kind of like, you know, I mean, obviously anybody who had a pistol in the 1800s isn't here yeah. anymore. But do you typically see influxes like that, like depending on that time yeah, of the, history? Yeah. The interest, you know, the interesting thing with that is if you, if you take somebody's birthday or uh, birth year mm -hmm. and subtract maybe 50 to 75, mm -hmm. I found that on the average, that's a good estimation of what guns people will be interested in. So, you know, if you're Gen X like me and you were born in the seventies, you know, sort of World War One to World War II, that's going to be kind of the sweet spot. And certainly in terms of the antique collecting market, that's where we see 
a lot of interest right now is in World War One, World War Two. It's actually not my focus. Mm-hmm. Probably more because I'm a academically I'm a scholar of 19th century American history, so I was very interested in, you know, sort of from the colonial era into the early Republic and then the rise of the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s and 60s. That was that was my area of focus. But we definitely see, you know, we're starting to see sort of the last of the great generation and the baby boomers now are starting to die off. And certainly that's going to put their their collections back on the market. I would say as the baby boomers die off, we're probably seeing more antiques than World War One and World War II. I think that was, I think for them, that was just an old gun, but it wasn't sort of historic. I'm mm-hmm. putting that in air quotes. Yeah. Whereas for Gen X and Gen Y and the, the millennials that, you know, that there's a lot more interest in collecting World War One and World War Two there. So I would say in terms of what I'm seeing coming on the market right now, it's probably sort of mid to late 19th century and then certainly creeping into World War I and World War II. I am seeing more of that come onto the market now. I, the other day I helped a, a, a collector sell off a large collection and there was an Arasaka from World War II. Uh, there was a couple of World War I revolvers in there. So yeah, we're definitely seeing those. And you know, it's always amazing what comes out of people's attics. Oh, um, I know. I couldn't even imagine. You know, even, even in my neighborhood here, I've had a couple that have rolled in that have just made my eyes bug out. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Taking another quick break, talking about Caldwell. One of the products Caldwell is probably most known for is their lead sleds. They're a great tool if you really want to confirm a good precision zero on a rifle, especially I think back to when I had Christy Titus and she was like, hey, you know, you want to make sure that your gun is zeroed in for hunting because at the end of the day, it's almost immoral that your gun isn't because you might be taking that shot thinking that you're hitting them in the right place or that animal that you're hitting them in the right place and you're not. So always good to make sure that your gun is zeroed in. The lead sled, how they work is they do this by having a solid frame construction that supports both ends of the rifle and it weighs down with bags of lead to completely absorb that recoil so the gun doesn't even move. Really, all you have to do is adjust it so that the crosshairs are on target and squeeze the trigger and then obviously make you know adjustments accordingly. They have several different versions of the lead sled to choose from and they start at $109.99. But remember, if you use the code GUNFUNNY10, that's all one word, you're going to get 10% off, and that is at CaldwellShooting.com. You recently posted a picture of a Patterson revolver. Yeah. Where did you find that? <laughs> so that was at a, uh, a meeting of the Texas Gun Collectors Association. That's another collecting group that I belong to. TGCA is obviously not manufacturer-specific. So when you go to a TGCA show, you're going to see a little bit of everything, it is Texas, so it's kind of Colt heavy. It's kind of Winchester heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, we we love them anyways. Mm-hmm. So I went to the uh, TGCA show. It was two or three weeks ago. It was in San Marcos. The spring show is typically just a buy and sell. And then in the fall show, they also do antique displays there. Anyways, at the spring show, one of my good friends came out there and he brought a number of his guns along that weren't for sale. He just, you know, he just, as, as we joked, he just wanted to get them out and get them some fresh air. And uh, yeah, one of them was that uh, original Patterson, which was really cool. I'd actually never held a Patterson before. Wow. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? Also- Do you ever just like hold this gun? You're like, man, if only these objects could talk. Oh, yeah. And just I mean, tell me what they've seen, you know? And the Patterson, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would say it wasn't the coolest gun at the show, because for me, it was pretty darn cool. But I mean, there was a Colt Walker there, like an original Walker. There was a dance revolver made by the Dance Brothers, which was one of the few Confederate companies that was making uh, firearms during the civil war that was from texas wow what else was there there was a teddy roosevelt double barrel shotgun there that was actually owned and used by theodore roosevelt so i mean there was some really really cool stuff what about the history of the first colt which apparently doesn't have colt stamped anywhere on it is that true i think it is i actually so colt is not my area of specialty and i you know, I, I know enough to be dangerous in that space, mm-hmm. but I have heard that before that it wasn't stamped Colt anywhere, which is kind of surprising because Samuel Colt was just a master marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was the one that put that, you know, those really fancy barrel scenes on the cylinder and did all the presentation guns to famous people. I mean, he just knew how to make his stuff. He knew how to make you want his stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those original prototypes and, you know, maybe, maybe Smith and Wesson one, number one wasn't marked either. It's entirely possible. 
Yeah. And it could be out there in somebody's drawer right now. Right. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. And then you're also a competitive marksman. So what kind yeah. of like competitions do you compete in? Which I think is interesting and cool because a lot of times you don't see people that like, maybe they just dip their toes in the history, but they're like, eh, you know, I mean, especially if you have like historic guns, you're not going to go out and like shoot them all. Cause you're just like, oh no, this one's going to, you know, <laughs> stain the case. And yeah, I think that that's cool that you also go to the range and actually shoot and not just research, you know, yeah. And that was actually how I got into firearms. You know, it was a friend of mine that took me to uh, to a shooting range back in 2002 and I just kind of got hooked. So I, I got started in competitive shooting actually in a group called the Zombie Shooters Association, mm-hmm. um, which I think was based out of North Carolina at the time. It worked like a number of the sort of major competitive leagues, but the rules were sort of tamped down a little bit. So it wasn't, it wasn't quite the um, expensive gear fest that some of the other competitions have become now. But I shot in Zombie Shooters Association for a couple of years, really, really enjoyed it. That was in the early 2010s. That was also when I started doing a lot more training. So I became a bit of a training junkie and I still try to go out, you know, and do a couple of serious training classes every year. After that, I got into the Glock Sports Shooting Foundation and the competitions that they run. I think they're just fantastic. That's most of what I participated in. I moved to Louisiana. And then right before the pandemic, I was looking into uh, getting into USPSA. I was kind of all tooled up and ready to go for that. And then the pandemic hit and shut the world down for two years. Right. So that group is very active here, uh, just outside of Baton Rouge. And I am still going to plan or planning to go out and start shooting with them. I do want to sort of ramp up my competitive game even more. And there's also a local range that I belong to and they do, you know, bowling pin shoots and that kind of thing. So I haven't invested as intensely in the competitive shooting, honestly, just because of time. I'm trying to finish my book now and and working and, you know, Mm -hmm. having to adult and live life and all that. So, yeah. But um, no, I've always loved the competitive shooting. And I always kind of joke with people that if you look at my gun collection, it's sort of the 1840s to the 1880s. And then there's this kind of big gap of about 100 years. And then, you know, my, my modern Glocks and Smith & Wessons and Colts and 1911s, I, I, I absolutely love those. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love it. Do you have any future plans that you can share with listeners? Yeah. So I'm actually working on a full-length book right now. This is obviously based on my thesis, but I'm completely rewriting it. This is going to be about um, Smith & Wesson's earliest years, the start of the company. And it actually really goes back to the 1820s. I talk a lot about sort of what was going on in the United States with the industrial revolution, some of the crazy personalities that were involved. So I think it's really interesting. And I'm writing that as a full length book. And like I said, the book starts around the 1820s, but really the focus is on Smith and Wesson starting in 1856. And then the first of the companies, maybe first three or four years, which really hasn't been written about at all. I'm also developing the consulting and the public speaking side of my business. So I'm looking to do some public speaking engagements. So if you belong to an organization that uh, you think would enjoy hearing from a firearms historian, maybe even seeing some historic guns, I would love to talk. And of course, the social media stuff, which I got into late last year, and I'm going to keep building up my my social media following. And I'm not quite sure why I'm doing that yet, but it seems cool. And I, I meet <laughs> cool people like you through it. So yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to keep that going. If people want to follow you on social media or do you have a website? I do. Okay. I do. My, webs- my website is mikehelms.org. Okay. Perfect. Only because .com was taken. Right. So and mikehelms.org. Then, and then your social media is? My social media is Firearms Historian. And are you just on Instagram and Facebook or just Instagram? Instagram, Instagram Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Okay. You're not on TikTok? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> should, should I be on TikTok? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I haven't put really much effort into TikTok, but it's like, I know that they hate guns, but it's also, I think you could reach a lot more people on so TikTok you're than we, you could. We all need to go to TikTok tomorrow and absolutely inundate it with gun videos. Right. I know. Yeah. Or we all just get banned at once. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> well, I like it. it sounds but, good to me. All right, cool. Well, guys, go ahead and give Mike a follow. And on that note, we're going to move forward with the rest of the show to today in politics. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's political AF. Biden appoints acting ATF director. So the Biden administration recently announced that they're going to replace acting director Marvin Richardson of the ATF. 
word is that Biden isn't happy with Richardson because he isn't anti-gun enough and has been working to, quote unquote, closely with the firearms industry after he attended SHOT Show. Richardson is hardly pro-gun. Remember, Richardson received a medal for his involvement at Waco and has been involved with every major anti-gun initiative in years. He was more against guns than the previous acting director, Regina Lombardo, but Biden didn't think that he was going far enough on privately made firearms. Richardson was demoted to deputy director, and Biden used the Vacancy Reform Act to appoint U.S. Attorney Gary Restraino as the interim director. Restraino has served as the U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona since last November. Little is available about Restraino's intentions towards guns, but given Biden's sentiments and reasons for replacing Richardson, we can expect that he will direct the ATF with more extreme anti-gun fervor than his predecessors. The way that he was appointed as interim director can't really be challenged and is a move by Biden to get the most anti-gun director that he can find immediately in charge. Biden knows his nomination of permanent director Steve Dettelbach will have a tough time being confirmed. Dettelbach is basically another David Chipman, but with less visible political baggage. This shuffling of directors is definitely a way to sidestep the confirmation requirement and get someone more anti-gun in charge. Restraino will be overseeing the final rule on braces. We're sure to see his full intentions on gun control there. Like I said, there's not much that we can do about Restraino, but definitely contact your senators and tell them that you oppose Dettelbach as permanent director. Franklin Armory. One of the binary triggers I'm most excited to try out because of the cost of ammo these days is the 22C1 for the Ruger 10-22. And actually, I got to be honest, I don't even have a 10-22. I'm probably like one of the only gun owners out there that doesn't have a 10-22. But this trigger is going to make me get a 10-22. So have you ever tried a binary trigger, Mike? I have not, actually. But oh. I do have a 10-22. Oh, see? Okay. How about this? Where do you live? You're in... You're in. Uh, I'm Bat- in Baton Rouge. Okay. So that's not that. In fact, wait a minute. At the NRA, I'll bring my trigger. You bring your gun. Okay. And then bam. It's a deal. Yeah. 1022, right? Yeah. Take down or regular? I think it works with either. Okay. But yeah, I mean, binary is just so much fun to shoot. I mean, once you get the rhythm down, I think it's the closest to shooting. And I almost hate to say this like on air, but it's almost like the closest that you could shoot to shooting a machine gun legally. Just because, you know, once you get the rhythm down, you can definitely shoot pretty quickly. And if you've seen some of my reels on Instagram, I mean, it's just like, but there's definitely a rhythm. I did watch your reel and I thought, wow, you you really got to hate ammo to to do that. It looks like fun. Right. I know. I know. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I think that the 22 would be a lot of fun. Right now, it's actually on sale for just $269.99. And remember, if you use the code AVA, that's A-V-A, you're going to get 10% off your entire order. And that is at franklinarmory.com. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. All right. So today's Q&A is, would you say guns are a good investment? And I think this is an excellent question, especially considering that we have you on the show today. And I remember growing up, my parents always said like, yeah, you know, guns are a good investment, especially, I mean, man, if you think about machine guns, anything that was made before, was it 1986? Yeah. uh, Then, I mean, think about how much they've gone up in price. It's insane. I think like maybe you could go to or when you could go to gun shows and buy SKSs for $100 yeah. and AKs for $150. Or even like, like yeah. Mosin Nagats. Yeah. I guess, oh, well, yeah. I don't they know. practically gave those away. I yeah. know. I'm like, how much are Mosin Nagats now? But really, I mean, all that's left is kind of, I mean, it's, it's hard to find a really good one because a lot of it's just yeah. kind of junky, but... Yep. Uh, yep. It's, but even a junky one, you pay what? Three, four, five hundred dollars oh, for now? I know. Before that, it was like $70. Yeah, because I, I mean, I actually did grow up around guns. My parents had a gun store and I just remember people coming to the gun store and they always sold Mo's and Nagats and people would look at the serial numbers. They wanted matching yeah. parts. Yep. They wanted to make sure. And I don't know much about Mo's and Nagats, but was everything serialized like the furniture as well? I, I'm trying to think like what were the matching parts or was it just the receiver set? 
but they would always look or they would be looking for a specific like number within a certain time period. You know, I'm trying to, and I'm probably confusing Nagants with uh, with some of the Enfields that I'm more familiar with, but I think it was the Bolt and the Receiver. And the, so there's going to be a bunch of Nagant people listening. Oh, why don't yeah. they call No, me? actually, I think you're right. I think that that, I yeah. think it was the Bolt and the Receiver. But again, this is me going back to like when I was 12 and like what I kind of vaguely remember and not knowing anything about guns. And just kind of thinking like, okay, that's weird that that's what they want, but whatever. <laughs> and just my dad getting annoyed where they're like, yeah, you're touching all the guns. Like, can you just pick one and buy it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I would say guns are definitely a good investment. They do seem to only go up in cost. I mean, nowadays, think about everything has gone up in cost. Everything's been inflated. It's pretty ridiculous. But I don't know what are your takes on that. Yeah, it's hard, you know, and this is this is an argument that usually comes up, I'd say, about once every year or once every two years in the collecting community. And somebody with an economics degree jumps in and, you know, pours cold water on the whole thing. But I think in general, they can be good investments. I think there's a couple of things I gravitate towards and there's a couple of things I tend to avoid. Mm-hmm. Generally, I avoid, I avoid sort of commemoratives, you know, the, I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. 45th Eagle Landing gold-plated commemorative mm-hmm. edition those usually aren't going to do very well in the long run. I think what people in collecting generally like the most is really common guns that are actually in really good condition because, of course, they're tools and people buy them and use them and hammer fence posts in with them or do whatever they're going to do with them. And mm-hmm. So in general, I think I think there can be good investments made. I think I think like any investment, it takes a lot of elbow grease. So I think if you... Um, you know, if you're just going to walk into a retail store and buy something, that could be a great purchase. But I'm not sure that I would, I would put it on par with, say, a, you know, a, a balanced stock portfolio or something like that. You know, but certainly if you're willing to put the time in and go to, you know, farm auctions or something like that, and you're going to see a lot of junk, but once in a while a gem is going to pop up, or like I say, some of the attic guns that find their way to me in the neighborhood and sort of make my eyes you know, bulge out when I see them. Yeah, absolutely. There can be some great investments. And I'll say this, I mean, in uh, 2002, when I bought my first Smith and Wesson model 60 revolver, and it was just a standard two and, you know, two and a half inch barrel, I think I paid $419 for it brand new at the door. Wow. Yeah. And, and what I do you think? think a, what does it go for now? I think the MSRP is around 850 on that now. So, hmm. you know, street price, I don't know, you're probably in the six or 700 range, somewhere yeah. like that. So they're definitely going up in value. And I'll say this, I know a lot of people who uh, who have made really good livings just uh, buying and selling used and antique guns. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's definitely value to be had there. But I think like any investment, you know, you have to go into it with your eyes open and look at the market and think long and hard about what you think people are going to want. Yeah. And also, you have to remember, there has to be a buyer. Absolutely. So you could, I mean, remember when Beanie Babies were a huge thing? Yep. And everybody collected them and they were like, oh, these are going to be worth something. Yep. And they uh, never they were, were worth something until they weren't. Yeah. yeah. They really, I mean, I don't think that they ever reached like a high point. Like maybe there was a few that were kind of scarce that people wanted. But for the most yeah. part, I just remember like all these people with these huge bags of beanie babies and they're yeah. just like dropping them off at Goodwill because they're like, all right, well, this isn't, you know, it's not gaining yeah. momentum. It's not increasing in yeah. value. And yet there's another side to that coin, you know, for years, old Glocks were just junk guns that would show up at gun shows. And, you know, you would buy, I don't know, you'd buy an old like ex-police Glock for, you know, I don't know, 200 bucks or whatever. And you'd buy it and you'd do a trigger job on it or put a, put an optic on it or whatever. And now all of a sudden old Glocks are becoming highly collectible. So it's almost like yeah. you have to sort of look for things that kind of reach that point where they're almost kind of junk status mm-hmm. and then make a decision. All right, are they going to stay junk? Or are they going to all of a sudden shoot up in value because everybody wants a, a pencil barrel Gen 1 Glock 17? Mm-hmm. So Interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. And as I get older too, it's investments are, you know, something that you think more about and, you know, and yeah, then sort of your retirement. Of I know. Yeah. God, it sucks. You're just yeah. like, cool. You get paid and you're like, well, sorry, we can't spend it all. We got to put some of it away. Yeah. And, you know. and- and you know, the other hard thing with investments, and I tell people this with old guns, if, if it's an investment, it means at some point you are going to have to sell it. So, mm-hmm. you know, think about sort of crossing that bridge and and not only selling it, but like you said, having a willing buyer and what's your sales channel. If you're going to go to auction, that's great, but you're probably going to lose 20% to the commission and yeah. so on and so forth. So there's there, there's a lot to think about in that 
in that whole sort of chain of if it's really going to be a financial investment, what what all does that include? It's not just buying and hoarding guns, which is fun too. Mm -hmm, Right. I know. Uh, You can never have too many guns. No, no. I have too many guns, said nobody ever. Exactly. Only people that I don't trust. Yes. Yeah. IWI. So if you're looking for a great all-around full-size pistol, check out the Masad. It's one of my favorites in its class, and you get a ton of features for the price. So it's completely ambidextrous, has one of the most ergonomic grips around, plus it's optic-ready, comes with four adapter plates for the most common red dots. The only thing I've changed on mine is the sights after I put a red dot on it so that I can co-witness the irons. They use the SIG pattern sights, so if you want to change them, all you have to do is look for that SIG pattern sights. It's also got a pretty awesome trigger straight from the factory, which is rare. MSRP on this, best of all, is only 480 And even the new tactical version, which includes a threaded barrel, is the exact same price. You really can't beat it. Find out more about this at IWI.us. Remember, while you're there, if you find any accessories on the web store, use the code GUNFUNNY15. That's all one word, and that's going to get you 15% off. Tactic Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. Beretta PMXS announced. So Beretta recently announced the release of their 9mm semi-auto PMXS subgun in Europe. It's a civilian model of the PMX, which is for military and law enforcement. Their version, of course, is closed bolt submachine gun. The design was inspired from the Humble Tech 9 and reimagined by Swiss gun wizards Bruger and Thormit, known as BNT, with some internal and external modifications from Beretta. If you check out the pictures, it definitely has some modern Tech 9 look to it with modern rails, ambi controls, and backup flip sights. The civilian version, of course, dropped the select fire capability and closed bolt operation was changed to straight blowback. It still hasn't been approved by ATF for import yet, but word has it that it should be approved very soon. So we might be seeing that here in the U.S. Um, Definitely looks like a lot of fun. So I am hoping that it gets approved soon. But I heard that importing a gun from out of the country is pretty hard. Like you have to jump through some major hoops and ladders. So hopefully that does happen. But same with IWI. They have so many cool guns because there's the IWI U.S. Instagram page. And then there's the IWI. Maybe it's just IWI. I forget. But. I follow both. And every now and then I forget that it's just the regular IWI, which is in Israel. And I'm like, oh man, when did they come out with that gun? And that's just because that gun isn't available here in the US. So I'm not used to seeing it. But yeah, I mean, some of these other countries have some really cool guns. GSM Outdoors. Birchwood Casey is not only a great place to get all of your gun cleaning supplies like the gun scrubber, the cleaning kits and more, but they also have a ton of targets to choose from. They're the standard with reactive targets for the shoot and see targets, which are awesome so that you can easily see where you hit without going down range. They've also got a bunch of steel targets, including gongs, rimfire dueling trees and others. They even have a Texas star, which is something that I got last summer. And now that the weather's finally getting better. It's been a very, which I'm sure that you being in Louisiana, you probably have had some pretty nice weather already, right? Oh yeah. It's in the mid eighties right now, bright and Uh, sunny. Yeah. It's been nothing but crappy out. Like it's just windy. It's cold. I think this weekend we're finally supposed to get nice weather, but it really, I mean, maybe it'll reach 70 on maybe once a week. Otherwise it's been like in the sixties, it's been miserable. And, and now I'm thinking, I'm like, cool, I'm going to Arizona. Well, actually, when this show comes out, I would have just gotten back from Arizona. Stay tuned for the next episode where I talk about my trip. But I am pasty white. Like, I'm going to have to bring all the sunscreen because my body, my skin is not ready for this, you know, for the sun that's going to be in Arizona. But yeah, I don't know what's going on with Colorado weather lately. But anyway, so yeah, Texas Star, that thing is freaking fun. Definitely going to master that thing this year. I was playing around with it last summer, which I got towards the end of the summer, so I didn't have a lot of time on it. 
but they have all kinds of stuff. So definitely check it out, birchwoodkc.com. Remember, just like all the other GSM Outdoor brands, if you use the code GUNFUNNY20, you're going to get 20% off. I am not renewing them as an advertiser after this month. So after the 31st, guys, just know, I don't know if that code's going to be active. So just something to keep in mind. Definitely go ahead and use all of the codes before then. Stupid, funny, cool, interesting, awesome, as f- Never mind. AF. Candidates can't use nickname on ballot. Colorado politician David Williams has a nickname that he's been going by for the last several months. He has requested to appear on the ballot for Colorado's 5th Congressional District as Dave, quote, let's go Brandon, and quote, Williams, hoping to unseat incumbent Doug Lamborn in the Republican primary. Colorado election law regarding ballots stipulates that a candidate's name may include one nickname if the candidate regularly uses the nickname and the nickname does not include any part of a political party name. Williams sued Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold for denying his request, saying it's a campaign slogan and not a nickname. On Wednesday, Denver District Judge Andrew McCollin agreed that Williams had proven he went by the nickname Let's Go Brandon. Williams includes it in his social media and other things, but the judge also ruled that the Secretary of State was correct in denying the request, which is definitely contradictory to the law. If he meets the requirement of it truly being his nickname, he's entitled to have it on the ballot as far as the law is concerned. Griswold, of course, disagrees and said the court's decision today affirms that the content of the ballot is not a place for political gamesmanship. Williams pointed out a candidate running for school board last year appeared as Blake, quote unquote, no mandates law and plans to appeal the decision. He said the Colorado Supreme Court should do its job and hear the appeal because the corrupt secretary of state shouldn't be allowed to violate the rule of law and that if they don't hear the case, they are derelict in their duty. I don't know how I feel about this, honestly. I mean, it's weird because it's like, well, if they have a nickname, but okay, how long do you have to have this nickname for if he's just been going by it for a few months? And also, I don't know. I just think that, and I'm sure that people, listeners are probably going to hate me for saying this, but I kind of think it's sort of unprofessional to just be like, Dave, quote, let's go, Brandon, and quote, Williams. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, what does politics like come to be at this point? Like, it's just, it's sort of just become sort of like a, a laughing stock of just, I don't know. I feel like politics need to be taken a little bit more seriously, but that's just kind of my opinion. I don't know. Mike, what do you have to say about it? Hmm. You know, as a historian, I've done such a good job of avoiding the political, (laughs) right? (laughs) the political stuff. No, I I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I would like to vote for people that take themselves very seriously yeah, or at least take the office that they are aspiring to very seriously. So, I mean, that's not said if somebody has a nickname, they have a nickname. Yeah. And that's not to say that I wouldn't vote for him with a name like that. I mean, I probably would be like, hell yeah, let's go, Brandon. All right. You got my vote, you know, but I don't know. And I would, I would think in some ways the, the, the controversy around this is probably the best advertising you can ask for. Oh, totally. I know. Which in some ways, maybe that's why they're doing it. That's the whole plan. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I didn't even think about that. But you're right, because even really, I mean, I mean, think about how much money these candidates spend in advertising. Ah, millions. All it's news ridiculous. is good news. Yeah. So really, this all is news all, is good news. Yeah. Which I will say, though, me living in Colorado, I have not actually heard this. I This is the first time that I'm reading about this. So I don't but know. He's been on, but he's been on the Ava Flanell shows now. So yeah. You know, he's famous now. Yeah, there you go. Now yeah. he's he's getting his he's five minutes map. of uh, <laughs> yep. of fame. But maybe though, because of like like you said, I wonder if a lot of these news outlets aren't really giving him the time of day or shining light on this because of that, and they don't want to give him the free advertising. Possibly. Huh. All right. Lastly, Manicor Arms. If you've got a Yugo M85 or the M92, check out the Renegade Handguard from Manicor Arms. The new updated version has textured grooves for a good grip and two rows of M-Lock slots on each side, plus one on the bottom for mounting all of your accessories. 
they come in black, Magpul Plum, and Bakelite Orange to match those Bakelite mags. And they're only $44.95. Definitely check it out, manacorums.com. Remember, use the code AVAROX15. That's all one word, and that's going to get you 15% off, and that is at manacorums.com. And I'm really excited to say that today we actually have iTunes reviews. And our guest last week, who was Dusty from Neomag, so he's giving away a free alias. And Mike, you have to pick the lucky winner. I'm going to say, you know, either the first review or the second. So first review is Clayton Lother, new listener, new favorite podcast, five stars. Just started listening to the funny, fun, funny, fun, funny. <laughs> I think he meant gun funny. <laughs> and clearly it's been a long day for me. And I'm like, funny, fun, what? Gun That's funny. pretty funny. I know. Just started listening to the fun, funny. And it's the best. A great mix of news, reviews, and comic relief. Keep up the great work and keep the lead going down range. Second is Red One Delta, Bobby P. Awesome podcast, five stars. Have been listening since the beginning, and Ava has brought the show a long way. Great guests and information. Jon Snow is the man that supports my bad choices, a.k.a. Bobby Jr. Okay, so out of those, so do you want a first-time listener or a listener that's been around forever? Wow. I know. It's tough. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for giving me this decision. (laughs) Yeah. you know what? I'm going to go with the first time guy, I, I, the first time listener. I want to, I want to encourage that. And boy, that's not to say that the, uh, the longtime listener didn't deserve it also because his review was excellent too, but let, let's go with the first timer. Okay. And it actually pains me that you, I mean, Clayton Lothrow or Lothar, really excited that you're the winner, but I was also hoping that you'd pick the second one because he's a Patreon. And well, it's, it's, it's your show. You, you can no, pick the second one. No, that just, I mean, that's just how it works. Okay. The guest always has to pick the winner. I'm definitely so. not going to mess with how it works. So. Well, but I just want you guys to know it's not rigged because, you know, but Bobby, I was, I was sending good vibes your way. So if you're listening, I want you to know that, but Clayton, maybe this is your sign that maybe you should become a patron and join our awesome group in Facebook. On that note, it's time to wrap up. If you guys like the show, you want to support it, consider becoming a Patreon. All you have to do is go to gunfunny.com, click on the support the show link, make a donation, and you automatically get entered. Well, you have to search for the Patreon group. It's GF Media Patreons. And then you get access to our Patreon group. It's a lot of fun. Lots of great people. Blown Deadline, he's also giving away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron who does awesome Cerakote work. Also wanted to thank the $25 Patreons, Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran, 8888, Sake Holsters, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, Keith Callamore, Daniel Lee, Nick Theodosian, and Melissa Ridings. And then, of course, king of the Patreon is Jon Snow. And Mike, thank you so much for your time and sharing just all of this amazing knowledge that you have with us. Can you just remind people where they can find you online? Absolutely. Uh, if you go to mikehelms.org, that's M-I-K-E-H-E-L-M-S dot org, O-R-G, or you can find me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you uh, search for Mike Helms Firearms Historian, or you can just do Firearms Historian there, that should get you to my place. All right, cool. All right, guys. Well, I will see you next week and can't wait to tell you about my trip in Arizona and all the training that I did. Yeah. So we'll talk about that next week. And in the meantime, hope you guys have a great week and I will talk to you soon. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.